Welcome to Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Lutzen. Hi, Sharice. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You're working from home this morning. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, no, I'm I'm all alone here in, in the office at the, at, at the Red Rose Tea Building in Uptown St. John. I'm sorry to leave you hanging. Oh, but only mere blocks away from you, Sharice. Yeah, no, exactly, right? I'll probably see you when you walk home for lunch. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll walk by your place. Well, Sharice, we're uh, we're introducing um, a special uh, feature with Home Office. We're going to do uh, a series of interviews over the next couple of weeks with the New Brunswick provincial election coming up September fourteenth. Interviews with uh, with the party leaders in New Brunswick. Very exciting. I think so, definitely. And we're going to be, you know, largely focusing kind of on like economic issues mm-hmm. um, with with the leaders, but. Um, you know, but also dealing with some of the, the sort of larger issues at, at play in this campaign. I mean, this one really caught us uh, by surprise uh, with a snap election. I think, you know, a lot of us kind of, you know, we knew it might be coming. It's, it is a, a minority government and, um, and it's, you know, getting close to two years old now. Uh, we didn't necessarily expect uh, an election uh, campaign in the middle of a pandemic, Sharice, but here we are. Here we are. You know what? 2020 has been like weird enough. So like this, this shouldn't surprise any of us, right? Like pandemic, what's an election, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and then, and we're breaking ground here, uh, you know, that, that, that we know of. This is the first, um, you know, uh, provincial state or federal election in North America. So uh, New Brunswick is breaking ground. No, this is, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this all plays out on all these, all these different fronts for sure. Right. And, and um, in the last campaign, Sharice, uh, I had done uh, feature interviews uh, with the leaders of all the parties, and, uh, but they were all, uh, they went on the site in, in print. Um, right. So this is uh, our way of uh, jumping into doing these feature interviews uh, in podcast form. I mean, we'll still be uh, printing stories uh, out of these interviews that I'm going to do with the various leaders, but uh, this is our our first time uh, doing these interviews in podcast form. So I'm I'm really excited about that. Yeah, yeah, no, me as well. And uh, so basically, uh, for people listening, we'll be dropping these uh, party leader interviews, I guess, over the coming weeks before the election. So uh, make sure you're subscribed to Huddle Home Office to make sure you don't miss any of them. Absolutely. And, and our first one, uh, which you're going about to listen to, is with uh, David Kuhn, the leader of the Green Party. And uh, I chatted with him uh, in, in Fredericton. Uh, I was here in St. John, uh, but he was in his campaign office in Fredericton. So he's the first person that I spoke to. And uh, David and I had talked before um, the last election. And uh, so this was a really nice uh, long-form follow-up chat uh, for the two of us. And, uh, cause you know, he's suddenly finding himself like everybody else leading a, a campaign in, uh, during COVID-19, you know, and, and I won't give too, away too much in the chat that I had with him, uh, actually this morning. Um, uh, we're recording this Sharice, uh, on Tuesday morning, yes. uh, as long as I've got my place in the week, right, Sharice, right. <laughs> cause I am <laughs> losing track. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had to think for a second, like, is it Tuesday? Yes, it's, it's Tuesday. <laughs> It is Tuesday. And, uh, and so, you know, he, uh, I was in the fog here in St. John and, uh, he was in the rain in, in, in Fredericton. Um, you know, so we had a little bit gloomy, but we had an upbeat, upbeat, optimistic chat about the future of the province. And, um, you know, he said some interesting things about campaigning. He actually kind of likened, uh, this style of campaigning to, 
you know, back in the fifties, uh, when, when, you know, candidates would, uh, would drive around town in a flatbed truck and, and, and do speeches. <laughs> and he, and he said, they're trying to come up with kind of creative ways of doing campaigning, um, now, uh, around, you know, being able to, you know, speak to voters out in the community, um, but not being able to do door to door. So he talks to me about ways in which he and his party members or his candidates are doing that. And, and, you know, obviously we also chat about, about policy and, um, one of the interesting things, and this will come as no surprise, uh, to you with, with, uh, David Kuhn and, and the Green Party's, um, you know, politics, uh, he he is one of the party leaders that thinks that minority government works best. Right. Um, so he you know he's seen a lot of gains in the last uh, couple of years, uh, having influence in the legislature and and being able to work with the other parties, both uh, pre COVID nineteen, but then also with the all party committee um, with um, with during COVID nineteen. So you know he he would very much distinguish himself from at least the major leaders uh, with the Liberal Party and with the Progressive Conservative Party that, um, you know, be, that would be most comfortable historically working with, with majorities. And that's something certainly that, that uh, Blaine Higgs and, and both uh, Blaine Higgs and Kevin Vickers and, and I'm sure Chris Austin uh, from the People's Alliance and also the Democrats would, would prefer to work with majorities. Um, not meaning to speak with all of them. We'll certainly have this conversation with all of them. But, but David, you know, he was, was interesting, Sharice, because he was, he was very clear about that in the interview that he thinks this works best. And he may be one of the few people that hopes on the other end of this, that even if he's leading the government, that it's actually a minority. Wow. Well, it sounds like a really interesting conversation. Um, so why don't we get into it? Yeah, definitely. So uh, yeah, without further ado, here's uh, my chat with David Kuhn. Hi, David. How are you doing? Hi, Mark. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Yeah, so good to have you join me uh, Join me this morning. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Right. I think uh, I'm sitting here in, in our uh, office down in the uh, Red and Rose Tea Building in St. John, and uh, I've had my first couple of sips of coffee, though I think I'm good to go. Is there any fog today? <laughs> There's always fog, David. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Like it's it's, no. uh, but the you actually you did ask the right question because it is foggy this morning and uh, and uh, the fog is starting to clear from my brain as I as I drink some coffee. So where are you? Um, where are you this morning? Uh, right now I'm in uh, campaign and campaign central, our headquarters in uh, Fredericton, uh, which uh, both the provincial campaign and my uh, local Fredericton South campaign are sharing space here. On Queen Street, um, and so what's it? Uh, just across, if people know Fredericton, just across from the Sports Hall of Fame and the library. Oh wow! Yeah. And uh, what's it like? In, and what's it like in Fredericton this morning? Well, it's kind of um, uh, you know a, a rainyish day in Fredericton for sure. So um, that's good because we need the rain, and uh, farmers and gardeners alike have been waiting for a long time to get a good rainfall. Right. And like, actually, that probably is a nice segue into uh, into one of the things that, you know, I will talk about this morning. Um, how, how does I should start by saying, how does how has COVID-19 changed the way, you know, you're campaigning, um, both, you know, from a personal level, but also in terms of the policies that you promote? Because um, I know the last time you and I would have chatted at length, it would have been during the last campaign. You know, and I'm curious to know how does the you know, how does the green platform look? Uh, and your priorities look uh, in in the midst of, of COVID-19? 
Well, in terms of campaigning, it's changed everything because people don't really want you at their door for the most part. So there isn't really much door-to-door canvassing going on. And that usually is a huge part of the, uh, you know, riding level campaign. Um, so uh, all candidates, including myself, are having to come up with creative ways to create, uh, to establish events where people are in control of, of approaching you and how close they come and so on. Uh, pop up uh, a little more like kind of 1950s style campaigning, I guess, you know, if you can imagine someone on the back of a, of a flat bed truck covered in bunting, um, uh, rolling into a neighborhood, local neighborhood or a local community and, uh, and people coming out, uh, and, uh, to hear them. So quite different, uh, or we're inviting, uh, and I'm inviting people to call me who want me to come to the, their door to talk about specific issues where I would be you know, six feet, six feet away and, and masked and so on, but so they can have at least that personal conversation. I'm happy to do that as well. So we, we're really putting the onus on the voter to, uh, to, to, put them in the driver's seat in terms of how they want to be uh, approached and engaged. So that that's very different, very different. Right, well, that, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that you see it as a bit of a, a throwback. I love I love the the flatbed uh, the flatbed truck <laughs> analogy. So in some ways, I mean, it's it sounds like you're still able to connect. Okay. Well, we've come come up with some good great ways of doing it. Um, and, and, uh, certainly many of my uh, candidates are, are rolling that out as well around the province. Um, and so far so good, but, uh, you know, it, it, it really did require a shift, um, because we have been so focused in past campaigns on, uh, on door to door campaigning and make sure we got, got to everyone's door, um, at least once, if not uh, twice. So, um, so it's, it's created a very different campaign. That's for sure. Um, that, and I think that the same goes for, uh, leaders, uh, as the green party leader, it's difficult to, well, impossible to have a big rally, of course, uh, with people. Uh, so, uh, we're talking about much smaller, um, events as I travel the province. Right. What are, what are some of the more creative ways that, that you've had to use or that your candidates have used to, to connect? Well, in the rural ridings, um, candidates are, uh, a number of them are utilizing some kind of um, uh, trailer, sort of camping trailer or small RV or something, which is essentially a, a traveling campaign office, which they set up uh, in people's communities to let people know ahead of time that they're going to be there. Um, and there people can come and, and pick up signs, uh, come and meet the candidate, physically distanced uh, and masked outside. Um, so again, it's all about creating, uh, opportunities for voters, uh, to be in control of how they engage with the candidate, but make sure they know where candidates are going to be in and when, uh, and what that's going to look like. And so far that's been working well. Um, and we're trying to replicate that more on an urban scale in, uh, in the city ridings like Fredericton South. Right. So like, so, so far, no, no campers, you're not like hauling a camper through, through Fredericton or anything. No, but, uh, but we, we are, I know my team is, uh, is, uh, coming up with something that, um, uh, will be like that. Uh, certainly we're talking to, you know, uh, people about, uh, setting up in, in a driveway in a neighborhood, um, and inviting neighbors to come by, um, pop up events in, in parks, uh, again, inviting people to come by the pocket parks, 
which are obviously embedded right in people's neighborhoods and and that sort of uh, that sort of thing, as well as uh, promoting the idea that if someone wants me to come to their door, um, get in touch and I will be there, properly uh, distanced and masked to uh, have a more of a, a direct contact kind of um, uh, uh, conversation. Right, and you're you're the first person, the first leader uh, I've spoken to so far. So it's kind of heartening to hear uh, that that contact is happening because I know, of course, a lot of the early discussion is you know has been you know, how important, you know, social media, um, uh, you know, and, and picking up the phone would be during this campaign. So it's, it is heartening to hear that you're able to still able to make that one-on-one contact with people in person and, you know, in, in various ways. Yeah. When we were talking about the differences and of course, um, social media has always, has become very important of campaigns, any uh, element of campaigns anyways. And so there's that, of course, and, uh, our phone canvassing was always an integral part of our canvassing. We had the door-to-door and the phone canvassing. So um, the, the challenge has been, you know, of course, maybe we, we you could say we're upping the phone canvassing, upping the social media some, but but the um, the, uh, the, the, the replacement for the conventional door-to-door uh, uh, campaigning has, has been the, the creative uh, challenge here because it's important to be present and visible for each individual voter to the, as much as you can possibly be. And so we're coming up with ways to replace the obvious thing of which is knocking on people's door and, and, uh, we're not doing that. And, and how about uh, the way in which you're approaching this campaign from, from a policy uh, point of view, um, you know, reflecting back over the last couple of years, have you seen, seen some gains, you know, from the point of view of the green party and, and, you know, in the, the green economy and promoting, local economies in terms of the way in which you've been able to work with with the other parties? Well, because we've had a minority government, uh, absolutely. It was very difficult to get those kind of gains um, with a majority government uh, in my first term. But with a minority government situation, uh, that's absolutely been possible and has occurred. So, for example, um, in the, the most recent budget, uh, that the conservatives brought forward, it uh, contained for the first time um, a commitment when that's that's implemented now uh, to to uh, tie income assistance uh, for people living on, in poverty to the to the inflation rate, so that people's purchasing power, meager as it is with income assistance, doesn't get eaten away anymore by by the cost of living going up. So that was a big win, um, and uh, I was pleased to see that. Similarly, in the budget. Um, there was a, and that's been implemented, a reduction in the interest rates for students on the cost of their borrowing. And uh, that was a big win as well. So there's a couple of examples. Um, there's quite a list really uh, of, uh, of examples where we made progress. Uh, I guess one of the more recent ones as well was uh, finally getting the premier particularly on side uh, with the idea that we need to um, be able to feed ourselves in a more fundamental way in this province. So we need to be more food self-sufficient. Uh, and he's, he's gotten behind that. Um, that's been a long, a long battle for, uh, for our party. And, uh, people may remember one of the first bills I brought forward in 2015. So five years ago was the local food security act. Uh, now to have the premier, um, put his support behind that idea, uh, is, uh, is a big win. That didn't happen under the former government, but because it's minority government. And I think also because of COVID, 
uh, and the pandemic, it really focused, has focused the mind on, of everyone on how can we shorten our supply lines, particularly for essential things like food. And so that's, uh, that's great. Uh, the implementation is, of course, is, uh, is, the, is, the, is where the rubber hits the road. And, and we haven't seen that, but uh, certainly uh, agriculture and public safety both have been working on um, what specific initiatives need to be taken to uh, ensure we can uh, better fe- feed ourselves in this province and in this region. Now, I know I noticed that uh, one day uh, last week, uh, you and and uh, and the Liberal leader and 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 uh, and the Conservative leader were all campaigning on the same day on you know I don't coincidentally on on agricultural and and local food supply chain um, issues, it, and you know it was it was striking to see that that debate take place um, on the campaign trail from all of you. Now I know. You know, practically speaking, obviously, you know, the premier is entering a campaign in which he would like to win a majority. Um, it, it gets me to thinking along the lines of what you're saying. If, if he got that majority, do you think you'd start to see gains like this that you've made move forward? Do you, do you feel like um, a, a difference has been made here and a shift in thinking has happened in part because of, you know, the influence of that minority party status, but also COVID-19? Well, certainly, I mean, I can speak to the shift in thinking I've seen in the premier um, and therefore the government, um, both on, on the need for local food security and um, on another issue that I myself and my colleagues have pressed really hard, which is to improve, significantly improve mental health um, services in the province and mental health and addiction services. And that's something else um, in this minority situation the premier has, has gotten behind. So... So that's, um, uh, and, and I absolutely, because of that shift in his thinking, if uh, in, the, in the next government, if uh, he, if it turns out that he's the premier, I would see that continuing. Uh, even if he's not the premier, I can't imagine that he would reverse himself on it because I've seen a fundamental change in the way he thinks about both of those things. Right. And, and, and partly too, because of course, you know, the election com- outcome is, is totally unknown at this point and who is going to sit as, as premier. Um, but it does, it, it makes me curious because I know that you would have, you know, you would have served, uh, in a legislature under, uh, you know, as a liberal majority government. And then, and then, uh, then Mr. Higgs won the last election. And, um, so does that feeling is that do you like that feeling of the minority government like do is it something that works for you and you think works for the province oh i think it's far better for the province because it enables a a greater diversity of voices to be reflected in legislation and in budgets um and that's uh, what we have begun to see um as opposed to what happens in a majority situation where basically the 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 premier rolls out whatever their um uh, their uh, electoral, electoral platform commitments were, and and any uh, anything else that he th- he particularly thinks or his ministers think are important to do, um, where voices from opposition parties uh, play uh, a very limited role in uh, in a majority situation. So we saw that in twenty, I saw that in twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen. Uh, outside, of course, of uh, uh, private members' bills that that, uh, that I've brought forward and my colleagues have brought forward, and you know, under under the Gallant government, I uh, had a private members' bill um, uh, pass uh, with all party support, and 
also was where it was able to get all party support for a code of conduct for MLA. So uh, that was under a majority situation. So things are possible. Definitely. It's harder work, <laughs> of course, because you have to do a lot of, uh, a lot of work to, uh, to get those things um, supported where in a minority situation, of course, there's, you already have uh, a, a situation where uh, the, the, the government of the day has to seek support for uh, whatever they want to do. And, and therefore is uh, obviously going to be open uh, to hear what other parties want to do. Now the, the you know, the, the, the week before the process that led to, that led to this election um, and that breakdown in, in negotiations, did that happen over policy or did that happen over, over just, you know, that feeling that, you know, either, you know, the liberals or the conservatives felt like they, they needed to try and make that play for, for a majority government that would, that would allow them to, you know, either one to move forward in, in, in a way that was, uh, you know, more resolute, I guess, from the point of view of a majority government, as, a, as opposed to the a minority situation that, that, uh, you know, a party like you would tend to favor. Well, you'd have to ask the liberals because they're the ones who didn't come back to the table and that's why it broke down. Um, so if they'd come back to the table, we would have continued negotiating, uh, through the weekend, Uh, specifically and particularly uh, on the agreement that would enable all parties to feel comfortable that uh, their priorities would be reflected in the budget and uh, throne speeches um, and that there would be no surprises with things that that we couldn't support to ensure uh, that what ended up being tabled would have the confidence of the House. So that was the agreement that we were working on. Um, you know, the chances of that happening among four parties is limited, but worth, uh, and I was skeptical, but worth uh, trying to see if we could work it out. So um, uh, the Liberals decided that they weren't interested in further negotiating on that, so they, they didn't come back to the table. We were getting to the, sort of the next steps where where um, the details about what kind of complication process would need to be in place uh, early on to ensure uh, that there was a real collaborative effort around throne speeches and budgets, um, and also how that relationship among four parties gets managed. So um, in British Columbia, for example, they took uh, some time to do that, of course, between the NDP and the Greens, and they actually set up a, a little secretariat uh, with an executive director to manage the relationship, which we would need with four parties. They'd, they determined they needed it for two. We definitely would need something like that for four with some kind of dispute resolution system. So anyways, that's the nitty gritty of getting down in the weeds. And that's what we would have spent, I believe, most of the weekend working out if the Liberals had come back. Right. And, and, and I don't mean to continue to harp on that sort of idea of the minority versus the majority, but you know, traditionally the, the province has been that kind of swing between, you know, a liberal majority and, and, a, and a conservative majority. And there, there can be that feeling, you know, in, in the province that, uh, that and it's almost like, uh, you know, that sort of business minded, um, you know, notion of, you know, somebody's got to be in charge here. Um, so I was just curious, uh, you know, about your, your perspective on that, because obviously you would come to it with, with a very different uh, way of approaching uh, collaboration and leadership on that on that level. Um, yeah. it, it, so are you are you if you had to be you know hopeful? Are you hopeful? Because obviously um, uh, you know both of those parties would would hope to gain a majority. Are you hopeful of another minority? Absolutely, and I'd like to lead it. 
I like to uh, have the opportunity to gain the confidence of the House to lead a minority government uh, in New Brunswick. The, the you know our system, um, which has routinely turned out majority governments, is uh, unusual in the world. Um, in the world, uh, most uh, most democratic uh, countries utilize uh, some kind of uh, proportional representation system, uh, which generally results in the need to have. Uh, uh, collaboration among parties, agreements among parties, sometimes even coalitions among parties. New Zealand right now, for example, has a coalition among two parties, uh, plus an agreement like the one we were trying to negotiate with the Greens. So there's a three-way uh, arrangement in New Zealand, which is working extremely well. Um, and New Zealand is an interesting example because they were one of the last holdouts, uh, like Canada, uh, to move from a first-past-the-post system to proportional representation and they did it in the 90s. And the uh, the unique thing they did was said, let's try it. And uh, then we'll have a referendum to see if people want to keep it. And that's exactly what they did. And the referendum, uh, after I think two terms uh, with proportional representation, uh, um, was very positive. Came back and said, yeah, we like the way it's working. Let's keep going. So, uh, you know, we are in the minority. It doesn't feel like it because uh, one of the uh, handful of other countries that still has a uh, a system like, in a sense, that we do that is first past the post is, is to the south, the United States, and the UK is in the same position. So really, those are the three democratic countries in the world that still um, have held on to first past the post and don't use some system of proportional representation, which gives you um, governments that are more collaborative um, with agreements across parties. And, and, you know, making making that full pivot um, towards uh, talking about you as, as you know, as, as a potential premier and leader uh, of this province is, is that uh, that I'm guessing that that would be a high priority for you to to transition our system into something like that. Oh, well, it's certainly it's been part of our our commitment in our in our platforms uh, every every election. And uh, so uh, abs absolutely we would uh, want to see electoral reform. And uh, I think that the, the New Zealand uh, model of how they approached it was a good way to go. I believe they had a referendum to determine uh, whether people wanted to try it um, with a commitment to follow up with a vote uh, to see whether it should continue. And uh, that's not a bad model. I'd, I'd consider that. And in terms of how you would... You would uh you know, pivot the economy here. Um, you know, obviously we're still, you know, an economy that, that is reliant on, on the fossil fuel industry, um, and on forestry, uh, you know, and there's still, you know, there still is the notion that we could develop a national, a natural gas, uh, industry, even though that, that debate has died down a lot of late. Um, how would you see pivoting, um, pivoting the economy given its reliance uh, on those industries that, that wouldn't necessarily align with, with green values and green ideas of how to grow? Well, actually, our economy is largely um, dependent on, on our small and medium-sized businesses in this uh, province. And what excites me when I travel the province is the tremendous creativity and, and, and approach to innovation that our, uh, our small business people and entrepreneurs uh, have and their their enthusiasm and energy for this province. I, I uh, let me just take a, for example the uh, craft alcohol industry and the businesses that make that up all over New Brunswick is extraordinarily successful. 
um, yet they are not uh, seeing the kind of support from uh, from government that uh, should be there. And so one of the things, and, and you can pick any 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 sector in the small to medium sized business sector, uh, any industry, it's uh, it's it's the same problem uh, as I travel the province that I hear. Uh, you look at the emerging, uh, in New Brunswick, it's emerging, it's, it's, it's much more mature in other jurisdictions, but the emerging renewable energy sector in New Brunswick, and I talked to the companies involved there and, and, uh, uh, you know, they're, again, they're, they're doing incredibly innovative things, but they, without the appropriate, uh, policies in place to remove some of the barriers, for example, on the electricity act, uh, that lock, uh, put everything in the hands of MB power, uh, it, it makes it difficult, for example, to supply a renewable power, which is the cheapest power now available from uh, wind to uh, municipalities to help uh, power their operations. So, so uh, the, 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 the shift I would make is, is really a, right off the bat an attitudinal one, which is to say, unlike past governments who have said they see small businesses as the backbone of New Brunswick's economy, but then don't actually act on it or act that way and and do the, I guess, the easy thing for governments, which is just to uh, continue to uh, support the the, uh, the big companies in the province and, and have them in the forefront of their mind. Um, that That's what I would do. It's uh, so, for example, craft alcohol. Uh, we've got ciders into we've got cider based companies we've got spirit based companies the distilleries we've got of course the breweries um and uh, and more around the province um what needs to happen well the mandate of mb liquor has to be such and i would write into the mandate letter that they need to promote uh, new brunswick's craft alcohol products that needs to be front and center for mb liquor uh, it's a crown corporation. That means it's a. It's not. It has a public purpose, and one of the public purposes should be to promote our own the products of our own companies uh, in this province, um, including, including of course uh, Moosehead. So, this is uh, a, a, an obvious one. Similarly, I mentioned the renewable energy companies like uh, uh, Next Gen Renewables in Rossi Saint John. Um, impressive company. There are many others around the province. There's uh, there's one in, in uh, right, well, it's two right around the Fredericton area as well. Um, the Electricity Act needs to change um, to remove those barriers for those companies to actually sign contracts with customers. Um, so so there's a whole variety of, of policy measures and legislative changes that need to occur to ensure that the small business sector can uh, flourish. And wherever they are in the province, and uh, and it, the, the the common thread I find in every corner of the province is this: great ideas, uh, great energy, uh, achieve much, but are constrained um, for the lack of supportive policy or barriers that exist in legislation. Um, you can say that about tourism. You can you know you 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 name it. You can find you can find the barriers, or you can find the, the lack of supportive policy. So that would be a priority for. For, uh, for us. Do you see any, you know, now that we're, you know, and these obviously would be long held policies uh, for you around, around reforming, um, you know, reforming regulations so that, you know, it allowed for, you know, the flourishing of things like wind power in the province. Um, do you see uh, special challenges coming out of 
COVID-19 connecting to how you see the economy developing? Like how, how has COVID-19 either changed the way you think or, or reinforced the way you've been thinking? Well, COVID-19, of course, has uh, created massive problems for uh, the tourism uh, sector in our economy, um, for, for artists, for uh, businesses that are dependent on uh, large gatherings of people um, or venues that run venues that, that, that require large gatherings of people to be uh, profitable. And so that those areas are going to uh, need particularly particular support um, as they as they shift because we're going to have to figure out how to um, manage COVID to keep people safe as as uh, we continue to to function uh, in our society and in our economy for the long term because uh, while we're all kind of desperate to get a vaccination um, it doesn't appear that that's going to happen as quickly as we would like and once it is available. Um, it's going to take some time to, of course, um, roll it out so everyone uh, can have access to the vaccination. Right. And obviously that's, uh, you know, that's a really critical piece uh, going forward is kind of, you know, the health and safety of the population as a first step towards uh, rebuilding, rebuilding the economy and strengthening the economy. Uh, do, you, do you have any... Do if I can just give one example about how people are dealing with this and how businesses and, and, and organizations are dealing with this. So the Atlantic Ballet uh, in New Brunswick, based in Moncton, uh, now has become an incredible ballet with an international reputation. Um, and they were trying to figure out how do you move forward uh, in COVID. And, and in the end, um, an outdoor stage was built in a beautiful setting uh, on Shediac Bay for, for the summer. Uh, that when enabled the ballet to perform uh, to smallish audiences, um, but um, very successfully, I attended uh, one of those performances, and it was uh, it was tr- it was it's extraordinary, really. Um, and that 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 not only can that stage be used for, could be used for other performances from other uh, other uh, artists and performers, but uh, it, it's that kind of innovative approach I think that we're going to have to support. Uh, to make sure that uh, those uh, uh, small business people and self-employed people like artists um, can flourish once again uh, in the face of COVID uh, in New Brunswick. Right, and especially with a lot of those, uh, you know, the performance venues, it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely critical that they, they're able to get back up and going. Um, so it is heartening to hear those. Yeah, so that raises some specific things that that government should be engaged in, which is, for example, um, to assist with um, bringing um, new ventilation or bringing ventilation systems up to enough um, in buildings. Uh, This is, you know, it's kind of down in the weeds, but it's going to be critical um, because that's changing physical plants um, and it's going to have to be done. Um, So let's Let's do that. Let's ensure the supports are there to uh, both technical and, and financial in terms of upfront capital um, through some kind of a loan program to ensure that uh, businesses and venues as well um, can uh, ensure that the ventilation they're providing is uh, adequate, uh, more than adequate to uh, ensure that it minimizes the risk of transmission of the virus inside their premises. 
Um, did, do you still uh, believe that you did the right thing in, in abstaining uh, from that uh, the vote uh, on mandatory vaccinations in the schools? You know, the only difference between uh, what the bill was proposing and, and what I believe was because I voted for it in second reading in principle. I do think government uh, should have the power to eliminate the exemption uh, for philosophical reasons. Um, it's just a question of when. Um, my position was it needs to be uh, eliminated when, when necessary. Um, and the bill was arguing that it should happen automatically. Because uh, since we have safe, healthy levels of vaccination rates in our schools, um, I don't believe we should be denying public education to children just because of the beliefs of their parents. I tried to amend the bill to ensure that um, it was easy for government to eliminate the, the, uh, that exemption if necessary, if, uh, if it was being utilized in a way after 38 years uh, as part of our mandatory vaccine uh, law, if, if, it was be, if it started to be used in ways that it was actually uh, in, in numbers that were gonna, was gonna undermine those safe, healthy vaccination rates, then it should be eliminated. So it was a question of, uh, eliminate, we should eliminate it when we need to, um, but at this point, uh, our vaccination, vaccination rates are high, uh, safe and healthy in our schools. Uh, so why would we deny the right to education uh, for a few children who's uh, just because of the beliefs of their parents? Uh, I don't think that's right or fair. Um, but as I said, um, we should have legislation that enables government to remove uh, that exemption uh, if in any way it is undermining the safe, uh, healthy rates of vaccination that we see in our schools as a result of our longstanding mandatory vaccination law. We've had a, a mandatory vaccination law in New Brunswick for 38 years. We're only one of two provinces uh, in the country who has done that, and it has served our children very well um, by enabling and ensuring that our vaccination rates are high, safe, and healthy for students. So I'm very proud that we have a mandatory uh, vaccination law in this province, and we have had for many years, and it's, it's worked very well. Um, so let's, uh, let's, let's deal with evidence. And uh, if, say, the, the uh, U.S.-based uh, uh, campaigns to undermine people's confidence in vaccines uh, caused uh, large numbers of people to start using that uh, exemption, well, uh, we should be able to, with a stroke of a, print, a, stroke of a pen, get rid of it. So I would be quite uh, comfortable bringing a legislation in uh, to do that. Uh, and, and that was what I said with, that, with Bill 11. Uh, I proposed an amendment. I voted for it in principle at second reading. I proposed an amendment uh, to just change that one item. And that is instead of removing the exemption automatically, that it should be removed when needed, when necessary. Well, I appreciate appreciate your time a, a lot, David. I'm gonna I'll finish on on one question, kind of looking ahead into the fall, because obviously, you know, whenever an election, um, you know, comes up and and the campaigns, you know, involve you know critiquing each other and trying to figure out the best way forward, um, you know, we we uh, you know in this where we are now, we can kind of forget that you guys actually did you know cooperate quite well for a long time. Um, you know, we are seeing kids going back in, into school in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, our businesses are, you know, slowly starting to, you know, rebuild and, and, and our economy is starting to come out of it. 
and you know obviously we could see you know we could see you know a second wave obviously so that we're guarding against that but how do you how do you feel as a leader going into the fall do you, do you feel do you feel optimistic do you feel good about where the province is heading well i i was feeling good where we were heading <laughs> um with a minority government and so uh you need to ask me after the election results come in. If if we have another minority government, I will continue to feel good where we uh, could head. Um, but uh, with the majority government, I would be concerned uh, that we would return to that that the, one of the old parties would return to their old ways, and um, then I would be uh, yeah not very happy at all. Uh, we've got many uh, major challenges in this province, and those challenges require. Um, the diversity of voices that are, that are that exist in New Brunswick that are reflected in the parties that are elected to the legislative assembly to be engaged uh, in decisions around policy and legislation. Um, we've got uh, uh, we've got a, a pandemic now that uh, we're going to have to figure out how to manage for the long haul in many ways and manage how we live and do business for the long haul. Uh, and of course, we have. The long haul problem of uh, the climate crisis, which we're going to have to uh, can, um, make some serious uh, shifts in the way we uh, produce and utilize uh, energy in all its forms in New Brunswick. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that you would see, you know, the lever of a minority government the best way to keep pressing ahead with a lot of that. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, minority, what I've seen is that um, with a minority government, there has been a much greater willingness to try and tackle some thorny issues, politically thorny issues, let's say, like healthcare reform, um, than than uh, than before. The problem is with what uh, what the Higgs government tried to do on healthcare reform is they they went ahead with that on their own without any kind of collaborative effort. And that was very frustrating because I had been pushing very hard on getting a commitment to establish a, a process where all the parties meet together to, to in public to deal with uh, our healthcare challenges, bring in the experts um, to help inform us what the problem, biggest problems were with, with solutions about how to address them and then implement them. Um, so, so they decided to go off on their own on that one and it was a train wreck, um, bad ideas. So, um, so th there's there's a good example where they tried to act as a majority government with respect to healthcare reform, and uh, it failed miserably because uh, they just had the wrong, a, a poor a poor plan. Have have they and, and other parties learned you know learned from those kinds of experiences to to more uh, willingly embrace this minority situation? Yeah, so I want to, yes, I want to make it clear to people, we hadn't had a minority government in 100 years in New Brunswick, so there was no living person with experience about how to operate with a minority government. This is really important. Um, so it took a while for uh, everyone to get their feet under them um, with uh, the minority government. You know, the first time a government brought a bill forward uh, that, uh, that I brought amendments to, to improve it that looked like they were going to pass, uh, the bill was withdrawn. <laughs> so they got scared. Um, but, but in the last six months, I would say of a government, uh, the minority government, 
uh, we were starting to hit our stride. So um, to give you that kind of example, uh, a government bill came forward. I proposed amendments. Uh, they sent them to their, their drafting people to try and get the legal language a bit better without changing the, the intent of the amendments. We met. They said, what do you think? Are you willing to uh, accept these amendments and withdraw yours? Well, I said, absolutely. I can see how legally they are much better in terms of the way they're drafted. Um, and But they contain absolutely the intent of my amendment. So I with, will withdraw mine and I will support the ones you'll bring forward. So that's the kind of thing people want to see. And we are just getting to that kind of um, cooperative uh, and collaboration uh, cooperation, collaboration in those last six months. It was very exciting, frankly, very exciting. Um, and uh, as opposed to in a majority government where you bring forward amendments to a government bill and unthinkingly the entire government caucus raises their hand and says, nay, um, you know, most of whom hadn't even read the bill in the first place that they were voting uh, for and uh, voting down the amendments too so so it's it was it was quite exciting in those days another example let me because this is really relevant for saint john in particular um the bill that came forward to to alter the agreement that municipalities had forged with the police and firefighters to uh where they gave up their right to strike and in, in return for a commitment to binding arbitration um and that was negotiated around a table when the legislation came forward um that would have uh of, force that uh, on all the parties. Uh, I was successful in convincing all uh, parties in the Legislative Assembly, including the Premier, through direct negotiations with him, to have that table reconvened to at least bring the parties together uh, once again so that the cities can say, this is no longer working for us in the way that we envisioned it would. And so that the police and firefighters could, could uh, hear that and uh, my hope was that they would bargain in good faith and work out a, an arrangement that would uh, be acceptable to all parties. Uh, so that happened because we had a minority government. Uh, sadly, um, it doesn't seem like all parties bargained in good faith or discussed in good faith around that table, and they didn't come up, up with much of a report in the end. Um, but you know what? I would force them back to the table uh, to try and work it out in good faith because um, really that's the best way of moving, uh, moving things forward. And uh, I would hope that, and, and I know they, they, they could, if they were well motivated, uh, that they could work that out. The cities have clearly, all the cities have, uh, are, are really concerned about how it's working today. Um, and uh, we need to work that out around the table instead of jamming legislation down people's throats. All right, David. Well, I look forward to you know catching up, uh, catching up with you in another conversation post election, and uh, and you know and see how things went. Um, I really appreciate you talking to me. Are you? Uh, do you have to campaign in the rain today? Uh, well, we moved inside actually, um, so um, so most of our campaigning is going to be done in a dry environment. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I think maybe we might emerge from the pea soup fog here, but I got a feeling that, uh, that that's just going to bring, uh, bring some rain with it, <laughs> but, but we'll stay up. We'll stay optimistic though, David. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll be in St. John tomorrow, so we'll see. All right. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, best of luck on the campaign trail. Thanks very much. And it was uh, enjoyable speaking with you over your podcast. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. That's the first of uh, a series of feature interviews with the New Brunswick uh, party leaders as we head toward the election on September the 14th. And so thank you, uh, David Kuhn, for being uh, the first in a series of conversations. And uh, you can subscribe to uh, Huddle Home Office on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. We keep adding platforms, so I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting a little bit confused. Um, yeah, so you can uh, subscribe to Huddle Home Office, and uh, you'll be able to listen to um, other episodes of uh, Home Office that we've recorded to date, and also uh, be uh, able to download future interviews with the other party leaders. And uh, we won't have a strict schedule for those. We'll just make sure that we get them all in uh, before September the 14th. So Keep an eye on Huddle Home Office because it won't be us uh, uh, dropping episodes uh, once a week or once every two weeks. You'll see them more frequently in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, so we look forward to having you listen. Huddle Home Office is produced by uh, me, Mark Legier, uh, Shree Sletson, and Tyler McLean. And uh, we will talk to you again soon.